It's time for Dodger baseball. The sports department at WFUV and the history behind it are a story largely untold. That is, until now. The voices that have shaped the student-run station for the last seven decades dive into their time at Rose Hill. This is the Off the Air Podcast, the legacy of WFUV Sports. Welcome to another edition of Off the Air, a holiday week edition, an NBA commencement edition as the season gets underway. Emmanuel Bavari alongside Chris Baccia and no better way to kick off the NBA season than bringing in Mike Walshevsky, the public address announcer for the New York Knicks. And Chris, an iconic voice when you walk into Madison Square Garden, that voice is synonymous with the biggest events, whether it be his calls of Patrick Ewing, Carmelo Anthony. Mike Walshevsky is directly tied to great Knicks moments and, more importantly, the world's most famous arena. And, Emmanuel, you said it. This is one of the most prominent FUV voices that is out there. He is connected to and, and really the voice of the most important arena that there is, one of the most important buildings in all of sports and some of the legends who have walked through that building but also someone who is of the legacy of, of being one of the earliest WFUV uh, prominent alumni. He, he's in that class of Malcolm Moran, who he crossed paths with uh, at the station, the founder of one-on-one um, New York's longest running sports calling show. So Mike is of a, of a generation that is so important uh, as sort of a foundation to what we are as a station now. And so it, it's really, really cool to hear his journey. Um, in this world, in this industry. We're going to dive into that foundation, his path through the industry, how he started doing Knicks games at Madison Square Garden, and also his philosophy on public address announcing and how to insert himself into the environment. An awesome discussion coming up, but first let's learn a little bit more about our guest on this week's Off the Air. This week on Off the Air, Mike Walshevsky. A 1979 Fordham graduate, Mike worked as the voice of numerous Fordham athletic programs, most notably men's basketball. Walshevsky has served as the arena voice of the Knicks since 1989 and the New York Liberty of the WNBA since their inception in 1997. He also voices many college basketball games at Madison Square Garden. And his voice talents can be heard in a television advertisement for Dr. Pepper and the 1995 Billy Crystal film, Forget Paris. Mike is entering his 31st season, welcoming fans to the world's most famous arena. Here's the Off the Air podcast with Mike Walshevsky. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So let's flash back to your, to your time at Fordham and even before that, what or who inspired you to, to, to pursue this, to be a, an in-arena announcer? Well, when I was a young kid, back in, before Fordham was established, um, but uh, I, I developed uh, a love for sports. I had older cousins who were sports fans. And uh, 
I love to participate in sports and that kind of thing. So I, I just caught the sports bug at an early age. I actually had two cousins who were Baltimore Oriole fans, believe it or not. And uh, they took me to my first um, Oriole Yankee game at Yankee Stadium when I was young. And my, my father, who passed away shortly after that, was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. So he took me to Met games. So I had a decide on allegiance and I finally decided to become a med fan. So, uh, so that's how it kind of all started. Um, when I was in uh, high school, uh, played a little basketball, not well, uh, but I became a, a team statistician. And, uh, and one of my fellow stat guys in high school was a guy by the name of Peter Hurt, who with his brother Steve uh, established or, or actually ran the Elias Sports Bureau for a number of years. Um, so when I got to Fordham, I was interested in sports and sports broadcasting. Um, and I joined, uh, joined WFUV right away. Uh, the sports department was pretty big then. And um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. We used to have to um, raise our own money at that time and uh, to by by hook or by crook to uh, uh, to allow us to travel to games uh, to rent uh, phone lines or, or if we were really riding high broadcast lines we traveled to every um, home and road game that was the goal in basketball also in football baseball we only did home games um, in that time, it was still a little bit in the afterglow of Fordham uh, having the Digger Phelps here uh, earlier that decade. So as a consequence of that, we were playing a national schedule. So Notre Dame, uh, Michigan, uh, UCLA, several garden games. We had five or six garden games every year. And what that meant was it was very expensive <laughs> to uh, for the travel and stuff. And, and <clears throat> on a couple of instances, we were able to go on the, on the team uh, charter, but in most cases we drove. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. If you allow me, we, we had a, uh, we had a crew go out to Fo Fordham, Notre Dame, uh, in, in South Bend. And by that point, I was not on the trip. I became sports director my junior year for two years. So I sent a crew out. Um, one of them was uh, probably the most prominent guy on that crew was not a broadcaster per se, but John Martin, a Fordham alum, who became executive producer of ESPN Radio Sports. And he just retired. Uh, anyway, so they're driving in the car and they leave early um, like four o'clock in the morning, okay, to get to South Bend without having to spend an overnight in a hotel. They get us, they, I get a call at about 10 o'clock at night and they say, uh, bad news. Um, we hit a snowstorm. Uh, we got stuck and found a motel in Sandusky, Ohio, of all places, uh, big metropolis. So I said, all right, yeah, we'll spring for it. Good luck. And we'll, you know, continue on to South Bend the next day. So the next day, from what they told me, was a beautiful morning. And um, 
they went uh, uh, to the hotel desk to check out. And uh, uh, the hotel person said, yeah, it's gorgeous here. The sun is out, even though it's only 20 degrees or 30 degrees. Um, you guys found us okay? Yeah, we parked, but we had to go all the way in the back of the parking lot to find a, spl uh, a space to park our car that wasn't snow covered. So the hotel clerk pointed and said, is it that way where you parked your car? And they said, yeah. And the clerk said, I would suggest you hurry out and get your car right away because last night you guys parked on Lake Erie and uh, because they parked on the frozen lake. Uh, but they did make it, the car didn't go through the ice. And uh, uh, it was, th that kind of symbolized the frustration and the trials and tribulations of, uh, you know, uh, a labor of love for us in the sports department. So, uh, like I said, I became sports director my junior year. Um, and uh, that really, uh, you know, at some point you have to think of starting a professional career. So in those days, the traditional radio path was to go out of town to a small radio station, TV station, work your way back to New York. I was about to make the decision to do that in my junior year, trying to make plans. And uh, then what happened was one day I was walking in the hallways of FUV and there was a little three by five index card typewritten on the bulletin board saying, there's a new outfit called Sportsphone. Sportsphone is looking for announcers and producers. It's a new technology, new technology. Well, what that was was, and I don't know how much you guys have ever, may or may not have heard of Sportsphone, but basically what you did was dial a phone number. In this case, it was 9761313. And you would get 60 seconds of the latest sports news and scores. Um, what made it, it was a partnership between the phone company and a production outfit, which I ultimately joined as a result of that postcard. And we produced the content for the product. What made the technology usable, viable commercially was that thousands of people could listen at one time. It wasn't an answering machine or a recording. It was, it was newfangled computer technology. So basically, if you guys listen to uh, all news radio stations with sports 15 and 45 past the hour, where they do a minute, 90 seconds, that's exactly what we were. Except instead of tuning in on a radio station, um, you would call um, and get all that information. Well, lo and behold, um, I was one of the original people that they hired to do that. I was a, um, uh, a producer at night. Uh, and it, we had two man crews, one producer and one announcer. And we would update this every 10 to 30 minutes, depending on what was going on. And I worked with an old New York sportscaster uh, by the name of Guy LeBeau, um, who had just finished a gig doing nightly sports for uh, WNBC TV uh, as their 11 o'clock sports guy. His son, Steve, actually went to, uh, to Fordham. Um, and uh, he, was, he was an old, crusty veteran, great guy, who taught me an 
a lot about sports reporting, digging, not being afraid, and, 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 and really helped me out a lot. And uh, sports phone got very popular. We broke stories. Um, I became, from producer, I became sports director of sports phone. Um, and uh, we were in our heyday getting about four or five million calls per month. So we had well over 100,000 people on a given day calling us for the latest sports news and scores. During the day, it was a lot of people from offices who were calling just because they didn't feel like working on a break or whatever. Eventually, companies closed that loophole when the phone company allowed them to block numbers. And at night, we got a lot of calls from guys who had put a couple of dollars on the game, or more than a couple of dollars. So um, that was that was our audience, and uh, um, it was a lot. It, it was an it was an awful lot of fun. But that sports phone became the the proving ground for a lot of people who are very prominent in sports broadcasting today. Uh, Bob Papa, Michael Kay, Gary Cohen, Howie Rose, um, just off the top of my head. Uh, there, are, uh, there are many others, and including a lot of Fordham guys who went uh, and made stops there. At, at sports phone before moving on to other things. Um, I stayed on till um, 1987 because I was not, I, I had been promoted not only from sports director, but to program director, because we did a lot of other programs, dial a joke, uh, dial Santa, and all those types of things. So um, I had a good spot there. But what happened was in the late 80s, um, we had a situation where ESPN started, uh, people had what were called then beepers where you could get readouts of scores uh, uh, on your own personal device. So everybody was chipping away at us. And finally, sports phone uh, was no longer, had near the impact that it had. So, so that was done. So then I had a career choice at that point and say what to do. And, uh, uh, what ended up happening was I got a call uh, about, well, actually first, I wrote a book on sports trivia as an outgrowth of what I used to do for sports phone. Um, and then a, shortly after that, I got a call from John Cirillo, who Fordham grad, obviously, and, and uh, adjunct professor at Fordham for a long time, uh, who was VP of PR for the Knicks at that point. And they said, um, John Condon is, is ill. He had been the original Knicks PA announcer from the mid-1940s, okay? He's ill. He needs a backup. Would you like to audition to be his backup? And I said, sure. Because at that time, uh, you know, it was some time after I graduated from Fordham. I had been doing PA here and there for Fordham, for Seton Hall, there was a, a, a USBL, the United States Basketball League, kind of a precursor to the G League. And they had a team in New York that played at the Westchester County Center. I did PA for them. So I was known, beginning to be known as a PA guy. So I was one of eight guys who auditioned at the Garden doing a high school prelim game 
uh, for the job. And uh, I, uh, at the end, I, I got the job. I didn't think I was going to get the job because my audition turned out to be the Hebrew League championship game. And not being Jewish and not being familiar with Hebrew and not wanting to mispronounce names to, uh, you know, make myself look bad, I, I went and got all the names and luckily pulled it off. Uh, but, but yeah, so that's what happened. And that, that was in 1989, the spring of 89. And I did my first Nick game uh, in the spring of 89, Nick Celtics. Nick, uh, Rick Pitino was actually a Nick coach then. And been doing it ever since. So that's how I got to do that. Thanks uh, for sharing that. W one of the things you mentioned early, Mike, was during your time at FUV, you graduated 1977 from Fordham, that you guys were playing in big stadiums, national games. And, and right. that's something that, that we actually we, we necessarily haven't necessarily had the chance to do during our time at FUV. What was it like getting the chance to do big game uh, basketball or football or whatever it was? Um, now you're in the world's most famous arena. What, how did that prepare you? And it, it was, uh, that's a good question. And, and, and uh, Ashley, Chris, it, we had some memorable moments um, on the road uh, at, at big arenas. Um, at that time, University of Maryland was very strong. Lefty Drizel was their, um, was their coach and he was very successful. Um, and culturally, you know, it was very interesting. Culturally, basketball at Maryland was so much different than Fordham. Fordham, you know, Rose Hill seats 3,000, give or take. Um, you go to the University of Maryland and you're up in the rafters doing the broadcast and the place literally seats 12,000, 13,000 people. And you and Lefty Drizel, a Southerner, with the drawl, the, the I mean the classic Southern coach. When he went and we went for the post game interview, thirty reporters, you know, and there and you and you got the feeling like they were all his buddies, you know, they, and 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 you just said, wow, this is just a totally much bigger much more unusual and they're the only show in town down down there too so uh it was you know and then georgetown at that time was just starting to get good with john thompson so that was that definitely showed me personally and i'm just using maryland as an example there were others what what big time basketball was like now the other exposure I had to the garden was when I was at Sportsbone, we used to send reporters to all the local games and we would go into the locker room after the game and gather, uh, you know, tape, uh, interview tapes. And then we would cut them up just like a radio station would. In that time, we cut them up on actual reel-to-reel -reel tape um, and use 10, 15 second snippets. So I got exposed to the garden that way. I was actually the beat reporter for the Knicks, the Jets, and uh, didn't do uh, and the Knicks, the Jets, and the Mets. 
actually. I did not do hockey. Um, so between the Fordham experience there and the garden experience, really when, when, I, when I started, you know, it's funny, when I started doing PA at the garden, I was so used to doing PA, it, I wasn't nervous. You know, I was nervous the first game I ever did, uh, but I quickly got over it. And there have only been a handful of times where I felt a little bit tense. One of those was the first one. You, you have to understand, John Condon was a legend, all right? He, he, was, he did the job for 33 years. He, was, he worked full-time for the Garden. He worked in the boxing department a lot uh, toward, toward the latter part of his tenure there. And I used to imitate him in the shower. I mean, you know, I, I uh, because the acoustics in my bathroom when I was growing up were good. Um, and uh, I, I really did. And then, so now here's what happens. And I wish, I wish we had a video of the opening, my first game. Uh, which was actually my first official game was the um, beginning of 89-90 season. Even though I had done one game the prior spring, but over the summer he passed. So that's why. They had this mega tribute to him on the scoreboard, deservedly so. His wife was sitting directly across from me in the first two celebrity seats at the garden near midcourt, directly opposite me. And uh, they had this tribute. And then um, he used to say at the end of a game, drive home safely, good night, okay? So the guy who narrated the piece on Condon finished it by saying, and John, drive home safely, good night. And the lights went dark. It was dramatic. I was emotional. And then the plan was, the way we had rehearsed it was, he was going to get up from his seat, the guy who did the voiceover for the tribute, and then I was going to take the seat, lights would come back up, and I would say, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Madison Square Garden. I, th there was, it was a, it was a little nerve-wracking, but, uh, but that worked out fine. But the only other times I may have been uh, a little tense was uh, when we had the, uh, the first All-Star game at the Garden. Uh, and uh, that was in 94, I think, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. And then the first game after 9-11, which was very emotional. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, and frankly, there was still a chill in the air, especially in New York City. There were rumors of, well, they're going to bomb the garden, you know, and that kind of thing. And uh, so, yeah, but outside of that, it's just been fun. Just been fun. You talked about that excitement and that energy. You've had several notable calls all the way from, from Patrick Ewing to more recently Carmelo Anthony. And I was reading a piece in the Times about various PA announcers, and, and you were talking specifically about making sure that you excite the fans without inserting yourself. How do you strike that balance throughout your career of, of making sure that you're, you're accurately representing the game and pumping up the fans without inserting yourself? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, Emmanuel. It, it, it's a situation where when I started, I tried to be John Condon Jr. He was emotive, but not real upbeat. 
but he was a classic. People loved it. Anyway, after about two years, new ownership came over. Um, Dave Checkets became the new president of the garden. And, uh, and he um, was somebody who said, let's pick it up a little bit. And at that time, NBA announcers had already started picking it up a little bit. So I picked it up a little bit. But there's always been the sense at the garden, starting from the top, that we're a classy professional place to watch a basketball game, iconic mecca of basketball. So I strike the balance by being very upbeat, um, but also continuing to be informative. Um, they, I, I have to say, they give me pretty much total leeway. They just let me go. And, and I just feel that I strike the balance of being upbeat, but yet being professional. Uh, there are other PA announcers in other markets, you know, who, who maybe just announce a nickname when a guy gets a basket and, uh, or there's a sound effect after the basket. Um, they yell and scream in, in a few uh, arenas. Um, and that's all cool. I mean, it, it, it's different things for different markets. Um, the garden market is the way it is. And trust me, if they ever told me, you know, we'd like you to take it up a notch or two and, and be crazy, I could do that. But, um, but no, there's no pressure to do that. And I feel very comfortable where I'm at with it. And, uh, you know, I think people get a good experience and, and the response has been very positive over the years. Mike, uh, you talk about some of those moments that maybe made you a little nervous, and brought chills, whether that was your first game, the first game after 9-11. I think about a, a PA announcer as being the person who feeds off the energy of the building more than anyone. And of course, we have empty arenas right now. We're, we're not filling stadiums with fans due to the pandemic. I wonder if the first day that we have a full Madison Square Garden crowd uh, and you're there as the PA announcer, if that will be uh, another uh, add to the list of times where there were chills running up your spine as the PA announcer. Believe it or not, Chris, I've already thought of that and I'm glad you brought that up. Um, because I thought of it in the context of what's going to be like for the first game without fans, um, because they will be using PA announcers. And, you know, I'll, so I plan on uh, doing some games for sure. Um, and uh, it could go on all season. That's going to be a little different too. Um, and uh, I know that, I'm not going to change my style or anything of that nature. I will be me. But you're right. Let's even think that we might not have, I don't know, who knows. We might not have any fans for any games through the end of the season this year. I mean, that's a definite possibility. We would hope to have fans back when the following season starts, um, which would be, um, you know, next fall. Uh, it's going to be a big adrenaline rush and the crowd is going to be nuts. They're, they're going to be more nuts than I am. I mean, I, you know, and it's just going to be like a year plus of pent up energy. Um, 
also in anticipation of the team, uh, you know, being better at that point. We would we we would all hope it is. And uh, so you know, with with new players who nobody has ever seen in person. <laughs> I mean, you know, unless they travel to a city that's allowing fans. It's going to be it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome, and I look forward uh, to something like that. And 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 yeah, I think I think that could be the next real emotional moment. Uh, emotional moment for me. Mike, you're referred to frequently as as Wally. Who coined the nickname? Where did where did it originate? Started at Fordham. Um, everything goes back to Fordham, doesn't it? And it's <laughs> just it really is. Um, when Okay, so at the end of my sophomore year, especially by the end of my sophomore year, we had a big sports department at FUV. Uh, I'd say about 30 people, okay? There wasn't a place to put all of them then. And some of the people were rarely on air um, at games. There were only so many games, okay? And I didn't do that many games. only because we wanted to share the wealth um, when I became sports director after my sophomore year. Uh, but, but WFUV at that time, we had an evening report, which was an evening news show. And there we would assign a lot of people uh, on a rotating basis to produce the sports cast on that news show. And they would do interviews by phone uh, and cut them up. I mean, it was a very you know, uh, professional sports department. My predecessor at Fordham uh, as sports director also for two years was Malcolm Moran, a very respected sports person and journalist, wrote for the New York Times, was a professor of journalism at Penn State. He's moved around a little bit. Great guy, Uh, grew up in Queens. Uh, So when they handed me the reins my junior year, well, actually, no. When they handed me the reins at the end of my sophomore year, okay, um, I called my first meeting. So it was in a classroom, and the classroom was like filled because they were like 32 people. So a guy by the name of Len Klatt, who was Malcolm's sidekick, his roommate, real funny, caustic guy. And they were outgoing seniors, Malcolm and Len, okay? So everybody's waiting, seated in the room. I walk in the room and Lenny Klatt goes, oh, look who's walking in now. It's King Wally, you know, like making it like I am now the king of all these 32 subjects in the sports department. And and people had called me Wally before, but Lenny put the king in front of it and King Wally became my moniker on sports phone. Okay, I was known as King Wally the daytime guy. But but when Lenny said that at that meeting that day, he made me Wally. And um, and 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 that really uh, and then that evolved into King Wally ultimately. Um, just from my last name, you know. Nobody wants to try to keep pronouncing my last name, so what the heck? Uh, so it, it's uh, it's worked out well. Everybody at the garden calls me Wally, always have. And uh, so if you say, you know, if as a matter of fact, there's some people, if you say, you know, oh, your PA announcer, Mike, they would say, who's Mike? So, uh, yeah, that's just, that's what it is. 
So I'm, I'm curious about your time as sports director because were, were you sports director for, for two years, junior two and years, senior year? Yes, my junior and senior year. What was and, that experience like? <laughs> you, you don't realize when you take over that uh, a couple of things in those days when, when you took over. You have two very large responsibilities. Um, one is arranging, base, basically making your own arrangements for phone lines, hookup, broadcasting at all the uh, sporting events that we had. And in a lot of cases, you know, like I said, it was big arenas and, you know, it wasn't, you know, just like walking in and to, to a thing and hooking up to. So, so that took up a lot of my time. And the other big thing was fundraising. And we, we needed in those days probably to do all the games. Now it's going to sound like nothing because it, this was a long time ago, but $5,000 a year we had to raise. Ideally, at least $10,000. Um, so we basically, the, our, believe it or not, and you probably couldn't do it today, our, one of our main, we had a couple of donors, alums, who were very generous, you know, relatively, and, and covered some of the budget. FUV at that time gave us very little. It was all up to us. We had what, what they would call a basket of cheer. And basically, we would go to, to a local liquor store and a, a, a beer store, and we would put together uh, and baskets of cheer used to be very popular in those days. So, so and then you'd, you'd have a raffle and that's basically what you did. And somebody would get, you know, 10 bottles of booze, <laughs> a couple of uh, cases of beer, and um, they would get, you know, uh, potato chips, popcorn, snacks. You'd get just this whole mess of stuff. And we raised up to a thousand dollars on a basket of cheer. I mean, it was uh, so, so fundraising was another big part of it. Now there's Chris, there's another segment that's also significant uh, as a sports director. And that is who's going to do the games and who's going to do, who's going to be your primary play-by-play -play person and who's going to be your color guy and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. So one of my biggest fears was assigning people because, you know, people would be offended if they weren't doing a particular game. Who's going to do the games? Is it going to be primarily the sports director who's going to do 80, 90 percent of the play by play? Fortunately for me, I didn't have that issue. I, I did not do 80. I did a lot of games, but not 80 to 90 percent. So, uh, you know, so there you have to be you have to tread lightly. Um, also you might put a, we had a couple of people with strong personalities, uh, on the, on the staff, great people, funny people, but sometimes you have to also, I don't want to imply that there was uh, jealousy or feuding, but you have to be, you want to put on a crew, people who are compatible. Okay. Uh, you know, if there's a guy who has a good sense of humor as a color guy, and there's a guy who, you know, doesn't feel comfortable, a play-by-play -play guy who doesn't feel comfortable with that, you, you have to be careful because there's egos involved and, and that kind of thing. Mike mentioned your career and some of the notable moments. want to leave you with this. Do you have a favorite 
name you've gotten to call throughout your career and introduce? Oh, there's no doubt it's Patrick Ewing. Uh, there's no doubt. I mean, he, um, you know, that's, that's the one that I've kind of been most synonymous with. And uh, I'm glad it's him because he happens to be uh, a great guy. Um, he, uh, 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 I'll leave you with this. It's really funny. When my daughter graduated from Fordham, uh, what is now uh, eight years ago, um, we were at a graduation and it's on the, uh, it, it, you know, the main ceremony is held on Edwards, okay? And, and if you were a parent uh, of, uh, of a student and you, as a parent, you went to Fordham, which I and my wife did, you get to sit up on the stairs on a kind of a reviewing stand on Edwards. Or, or also if you're a, a, a celebrity. So anyway, we, so we qualified as, as parents, obviously. And we, we walked up the stairs and I turn around to my wife. I said, there's Pat. And she goes, who's Pat? I said, Pat, Patrick Ewing. He was about four rows down. His daughter, Randy, was in my daughter's graduating class. And so I went back and said, hello. He had just had another child in a stroller. So he was kind of lying low. But I want people to know he is a great guy. I mean, he is a classy stand-up. Um, I just wish they could have gotten over the hump for a championship. Um, I'll always blame Sam Cassell, uh, game three, uh, making the big shot at the end for the Rockets, which cost us that after we were uh, even one and one with them. But anyway, he is a great guy. He was, he was in the back. Um, but who am I sitting next to up in the front? and this is especially a little poignant at this time, is Alex Trebek. Because Alex Trebek's son, Matt, was also in the class. So what happens is, so most of the time we couldn't talk because the ceremony was beginning. He was sitting like one row behind and one seat over. And uh, then there was a break after they have the main ceremony where all the different Fordham schools kind of leave into their own, for their own, you know, um, uh, for their own gathering and issuing of diplomas. But, uh, you know, the main Fordham College stays on Edwards. But there's like a 20-minute spot there where they're reconfiguring everything, getting the diplomas ready, changing people. And we were standing at the top step of Edwards, and I started talking to him. I struck up a conversation, told him who I was, very receptive. You want to talk about another guy who was a hell of a guy. In that 20, 25 minutes that I spoke to him that day, it was him. Um, very, very um, uh, knowledgeable in sports and knew what I did, you know, because a lot of celebrity wouldn't know, um, necessarily wouldn't grasp exactly what I do um, or what my job entails, I should say. And he did, knows, knew his hockey so well, so well. Um, like he would be your hockey nerd if he wasn't Alex Trebek, you know, your, your buddy who's a hockey nerd. Um, and, uh, and also no basketball. And it, it was, and I'll never forget that. And we were standing on top of all the people 
down there. And like people I know, I come down there. Why were you talking to Alex Trebek? You talked to Alex Trebek. I said, yeah. And I, he's, he's, a, he's a wonderful man. And I was so sad um, when, uh, when he passed. The funny thing, he goes, one funny thing anecdotally, I said, hey, how did um, your son end up at Fordham? And he goes, I don't know. He just ended up here. You know, he was talking to my wife, had a couple of places, wanted to go to Place X. And now he's here. And I believe Alex flew in himself for that ceremony. His wife was otherwise busy or whatever. Maybe she was there and I just didn't notice. But, um, you know, he flew cross country um, and then I guess went back pretty much right away. But uh, he was just a great guy. He really was. That's Mike Walshevsky. Appreciate the reflections. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the return of, of basketball to the Garden. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, guys. An awesome conversation with Mike Walshevsky and Chris. The main takeaway of mine from that conversation is, is the intricacy of the art of public address announcing and the profession as a whole, rather than completely going off what the fan base may desire and, and being a screamer, which is what some organizations may desire. He tries to compliment the crowd, and that doesn't take away any of the energy from the moments at Madison Square Garden, but he's more of a complimentary figure than the center of attention. And the work of public address announcing is changing right now. Of course, you're having empty arenas across the National Basketball Association will be the case in Madison Square Garden. And here's a guy who has been the PA guy for such big moments, and he referenced in our conversation the first one being the first game he ever did um, when he replaced a real legend in the job. And then the first game at the Garden after 9-11, an attack on our city. And how those were emotional sort of goosebumps moments. And it was really fascinating to hear him uh, sort of preview what that moment will be like when there are fans again in Madison Square Garden. It's a moment that we all look forward to. And uh, he just certainly... Uh, he certainly will feel that emotion more than any of us feeding off uh, a crowd at Madison Square Garden when that day comes. And of course, that will be the first time the Knicks are playing inside the Garden since everything happened with COVID-19. The NBA moved to a bubble. The Knicks were not a part of that environment, of course. So while there will not be fans, Chris, I think it will be special that moment where, let's say, MSG Networks taps into his feed and everything goes silent for a moment. And then it's Mike's floor, and he can introduce what will be, I'm sure, a very emotional moment the first time there will be competitive NBA action at MSG since the world was really taken aback by this pandemic. Yeah, and we've talked so much on our, on our programming about how important it is that we can have sort of the sideshow of sports that has been able to keep us sane a little bit during this time. And the NBA promises to offer that to us uh, with a, an exciting new season and, and, and ensuring that all, all safety is taken into account, that we can have an NBA season, that the Knicks are going to be on the hardwood. They've got some young talent. They've got an exciting first-round pick. Uh, and, and Mike uh, will, will certainly be uh, along on that journey. And, and he, more than anyone, wants to see this Knicks team finally get its act together. We don't know that that's going to happen soon, but that day will come uh, as well. And, and, and hope, and, you know, it's a, it'll be a good thing to see uh, Mike get to get to uh, call the, the names of some of these uh, exciting, promising players. And can't wait to hear his iteration of Obi Toppin 
this upcoming yes. weekend when the Knicks finally take the floor at Madison Square Garden at last. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Off the Air. If you want to catch any episode, we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on WFUVsports.org. Wherever you get your podcast, we have some fun episodes coming up. We're taking a step behind the scenes next week, so stay tuned for that. For this edition and Chris Baccia, I'm Emmanuel Barbari. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>